For the last uh, few weeks, we've been studying Isaiah 9. And it speaks in Isaiah 9 of a, a great joy, of a people celebrating a victory. It'll be the coming victory of Jesus Christ because this passage very plainly speaks of him. And Isaiah 9 speaks of a government that he intends to bring. And if, if you're to pause and to study human history, um, you would find that for hundreds, if not thousands of years, humans have made it their quest to have the perfect human righteous form of government, and they've never been able to do it. It seems, especially in our country, every four years we endure the same speeches presented with hopes of fixing all the wrongs the other political party has done and how this candidate can fix it all. It's a merry-go-round for some who are willing to pay the fee and jump on board. Most every candidate uses this utopian language to, to draw in their supporters so that they can finally have peace on earth, goodwill towards men, good healthy bank accounts, and freedom for all. And it's a utopian drug, and many in our country are hooked, addicted. And as Christians, we ought to know better. Where will we find the perfect righteous form of government? Winston Churchill said in 1947, democracy is the worst form of government, except for all of those other forms that have been tried from time to time. It's the best that we're able to do. But a righteous king has been found. He already walked the earth. 2,000 years ago he came, he lived right in front of us, displaying his character. And he left us his word so that we can learn of this one who came. And in it, we've been able to understand more clearly of what the kingdom he's bringing. In, in the Bible, it explains to us in this passage in particular, Isaiah 9, written seven centuries before that a king would be born a baby. And he tells us in verses 6 and 7 of what his character will be as he rules and what kind of government it should be. Isaiah 9 is here for us, especially this Christmas season, to show us where our hope should truly be. Not in any political process, not in any political party. Friends, we should put our hope right in King Jesus, our Prince of Peace. He will actually fulfill all of his promises. Turn off Fox News, turn off CNN, and sit at the feet of Jesus. He will bring you peace. He will fulfill all the longings that are deep within you. He will satisfy all of the needs that you have. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is the government that we have to look forward to, and I'm yearning for this government to do away with all of our pathetic attempts at self-rule, to, to finally and forever submit to this king, the king of kings, the prince of peace, Jesus. And he's coming to show us what a perfect government looks like on earth, to establish it and to uphold it forever. If you're new to our church, we welcome you. We've been walking through this passage. In fact, we've been camped on one verse, verse six in Isaiah 9. And this morning, we're going to conclude in, in this uh, four weeks of the names of Jesus that we find in this passage. With, But we're going to really expand on this whole uh, seven verses that we've been reading, but we haven't really talked about it. So we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 9, 
verses one through seven. And then we'll have our final conclusion of this series in Isaiah nine on Tuesday night. So I wanna encourage you to come back on Christmas Eve. Even if you have family plans, just pause from seven to eight. It's a one hour service. Even if your family fights you on it, see if you can talk them into coming here and prepare yourself. See, Christmas, we always doing all this preparation, right? If you're having people in your house, you prepare your home. Friends, spend some time, spend an hour here preparing your heart for the next day and joining in worship and gathered together as we, we look again to Jesus uh, on Christmas Eve. I want to encourage you to do that on, on Tuesday night from 7 to 8, 8 o'clock. But this morning, we're going we're gonna to look through these seven verses. So if you haven't already, turn to Isaiah chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible, we want to encourage you to grab one of those that are seated underneath the chairs. If you don't have one at all, please take it as a gift. This morning, um, you came to a Bible church. It's in our name. And so uh, we, we, it means we find our charge and we find our, our marching orders as Christians from the Bible. And so we seek to preach the word and sing the word and pray the word and read the word and see the word. And this morning we're gonna spend our time in the word. So it will serve you well to have a Bible open because that's where I'm gonna be, okay? So if you haven't already, turn your Bibles. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, it's on page 536 and follow with me as I read. Isaiah chapter nine, verses one through seven. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Would you join me as I pray? Father, we thank you for your word that brings us to understand the true meaning of Christmas. Help us this morning. Remind us again of the hope we have in Jesus. Mold and shape our hearts according to your word this morning. May we be changed by hearing it in our midst. We pray, amen. First thing I wanna look at is the first title there of Prince, Prince of Peace. Jesus is not only our wonderful counselor, a mighty God and everlasting father, he's our prince of peace. And what does it mean to be a prince? It means to have a rule over a people. And I've mentioned this every week, but the people to which Isaiah is writing to are, are living in a land filled with darkness and gloom and they're beginning to see a light coming, he says. And the context here politically is the humbling of the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. And I believe this is referring to the military oppression under the Assyrians God was sending the Assyrians from the north coming down to invade the northern kingdom of Israel as consequences to their sins. 
And during this time, Israel's time, Isaiah's time, Assyria comes and takes the people, takes Galilee, it says in, in 2 Kings 15, 29. And it's the beginning of the exile, the, the beginning of the end for God's people. And this is a terrible physical slavery. And by no means am I thinking lightly of this, but it's nothing to compare with the spiritual slavery, the cruel bondage that we feel under sin. That is the worst taskmaster. And I believe the political language that Isaiah uses here is to paint the picture for us spiritually of the release that Jesus is gonna bring spiritually. John, or Jesus said in John 8, 34, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Every one of us is born sinners, born in bondage to sin. We are slaves to sin. Only Jesus can set us free. And this prince will come from Galilee of the Gentiles and the teachers seem to forget that when Jesus is on earth and they question Nicodemus in John 7, they, they essentially had forgotten Isaiah 9. And these people in Isaiah's time are walking in darkness. The time of Jesus, they're, they're walking in darkness and Jesus comes and shines a light in Galilee of the Gentiles. And it's a significant symbol that Isaiah is addressing here, this, this idea of darkness. Darkness is what life looks like before we're converted to Christ. And you should know this Christmas season that you are surrounded by people who are walking in darkness. And they try to suppress the darkness with little, little glimmers of hope and light. If they're kind, if they're nice to people, if they give a little more during the Christmas season, then possibly the burden of sin might be lifted a little. But they walk around darkness with a burden. But for us as Christians, this burden is lifted because it's born on the shoulders of the Prince of Peace. In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 11, Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. And in this passage here in Isaiah this morning, he writes in verse four, for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. It's a terrible yoke of burden that's placed on the suffering people of God. And if you read your Old Testament, and especially in 2 Kings, chapter after chapter, it says this king and this king lived long and he reigned for this long. And then it says this, he, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. It's actually two answers and there's very few kings listed, but most of them are this. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And time after time, this is what you read. And the people follow their king. They do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. And I want to be perfectly transparent this morning, friends. God sees everything. All of your life, all of your thoughts, all of your hidden things are ever before God. There is nothing hidden. All of you is exposed and God sees all of it. So these people that I say is writing to are bearing the weight of their sin, the rejection of God, and they're walking in darkness with this incredible burden. And there really is two ways to live in this world. Either you show 
your, your shoulders endure the staff, the oppressor, and the yoke of this horrible burden, which is your sin and your guilt before God, or you come under the reign of the Prince of Peace and your shoulders bear the yoke of his authority over your life. Those are the only two ways to live. And you might have convinced yourself in the last year that there's possibly a third way, that you can be called a Christian and still live your life any way you choose. But the scriptures make it clear that if you're in Christ and you haven't submitted your entire life to him, that you're still under the weight of sin. You're a slave to your sin. There are no name-only Christians. And you might have come here this morning, the last Sunday before Christmas, to see what church is about, or maybe you got talked into coming by your family. And we're happy you're here. And whether you're here by yourself or a family or friend invited you, if you're not trusting in Christ to remove the weight of your sin, then this morning you're still under bondage. You still carry the yoke of your sin against God. And every single one of us carried that yoke, that burden of sin. Sin's darkness and the depression that comes from it, it squashes all of our joy. It crushes joy. And so people at Christmas have to try to put on a happy face to make it through. They celebrate things that don't really matter to them. They don't have any happiness or joy because they're still under the, the yoke, the oppression of sin. Because they don't know the Prince of Peace. And friend, if that's you here this morning, turn from your sin of trusting yourself and turn to the rightful King Jesus. Repent and believe in him. He is more than enough. And he will remove that weight of sin completely and give you the peace that your heart is desperately looking for. And friends, there is victory with this prince who's coming. And Isaiah alludes to it here in verse four. He says, did you catch that? You have broken as on the day of Midian. And this is talking about defeat. In verse five, he says, for every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. And what he's talking about here is a great celebration because of the defeat of their enemies. And some of you might be, not very few of you, probably old enough to remember the celebrations at the end of World War II. But the rest of us have to read about it. The rest of us have to watch documentaries to read about it. But in that, people were, were happy and rejoicing and celebrating in the streets because of the great enemy was defeated, right? At the end of the war, the Nazi regime was crushed. They weren't gonna rule the world and Hitler's dead. There would be no oppression, no bondage. They would be free. And so they rejoice because there's victory. And so Isaiah is showing us the same celebration. And with this crushing defeat and the victory is the foundation of eternal joy. And he writes, as on the day of Midian. And what is Isaiah referring to in verse four? Well, this comes back to the book of Judges. The book that testifies to the serious wickedness of the hearts of his people, the sinfulness of the Jews, and how they continually did what was right in their own eyes instead of God's. And if you read this book, there's this constant cycle in the book of rebellion and sin and rebellion and sin and wash and repeat over and over. And so there's consequences that God was giving them and he was giving them over to his enemies. 
And this enemy would rule them for a period, then God would raise up a deliverer, a victory would come. And then for a generation, the people would walk with the Lord, but then the next generation, it would devolve back again. Back to rebellion, back to sin. And again, it would start. And that's why at the end of the book, in Judges 21, 25, it says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. I don't know if you know this, but eventually everyone under their own power will do exactly what's right based upon what they think is right. And this is huge for us to understand, friends. All of history, world history, American history can be summed up in this statement. People will search for a righteous government and a king to lead it, and they will never find the right one on earth. You'll never be able to find a righteous king on earth. We walked through this in 1 Samuel, right? They wanted a king and they got Saul. People always look to rulers to lead them instead of God. And this relates to verse four because in, in this defeat and because in Judges 6, it talks about Midian's turn to dominate the people of God for their failure to submit their lives to God. And in Judges 6, it says, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel because Midian, the people of Israel, made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. I heard this week that John Wesley used to get very depressed after preaching in a revival because drunk people would get saved. They would get saved profession of faith at least, stop getting drunk, turn their life around, start saving their money, get a good job, and become rich, carnal, and worldly. They would end one enslavement and go to the next. They were believing that they left a master that they needed to and then of alcohol, and they would leave and go to another master. Riches. God was nowhere to be found. They needed a new king, but they wouldn't bow their knee to Jesus. Because that would cost them too much. It's the same for God's people in the Old Testament. And here in Judges 6, they're hiding, they're fearful what comes next as a result of their sin. And listen, friends, sin does this to us. Rejection of God and his ways causes us to be Fearful of the future. Sin is never truly comfortable. Sin lies to you. It may tempt you for a moment of pleasure, but it quickly replaces it with pain and confusion. Sin always lies to you. Has sin ever come up to you and said, I'm terrible and I'm going to ruin your life? What lies to you? It's at the bottom, at the page, small print. After you sin and you're walking away, that it, that it tells you what it truly is and how the destruction it's coming to your life. Sin is always lying. It has its makeup on. It looks great. And sin will always deceive you. It will never tell you the truth but God's word will. And so we need to be 
constant consumers of God's word. Otherwise, we'll be more captive to sin and the lies that it brings. And you and I need to be regular in God's word. And we need to be regular in sitting under the preaching of God's word. I, as your pastor, have to regularly sit under the preaching of God's word. You may ask, how do I do that? Because I'm always up here. I regularly listen to preaching during the week. I regularly read preaching because I need that. I need to read God's word. I need to hear God's word preached. It's air to my lungs. And you need God's word. There's been a group of us, 12 or 15 of us, who've been reading through the Bible in 2019. Friends, you know who we are. We're almost there, okay? Just a few more days. And and we're going to do it again in 2020. We'd love for you to join this group. You don't come to a place. You just read on your own. And, and it's because we need God's word. If you're going to battle sin, you need God's word. And God's people here, they ultimately cry out to God for help in Judges 6. And he hears them and he, and he hears their cry and he brings them Gideon. You perhaps know the story. God calls Gideon through an angel and He's from the weakest family, a small tribe, and, and God does this on purpose, right? Why, why would he choose the weakest and the smallest? Because God's method is in deliverance is a self-exaltation for his glory so that people could see it. He wants to make sure people know who does the saving. And he's gonna get all the glory. I mean, this sounds like Christmas, doesn't it? God comes in the form of a, a baby, Right? And so in this story, do you remember Gideon, how he responds? Gideon needs help for his weak spirit, and he puts out a fleece. And friends, I want to say this isn't praiseworthy here. Perhaps some of you think this is a biblical thing to do, putting out a fleece to God. But Gideon isn't praised for this. This is an act of a spiritually weak man, unwilling to trust God. He won't listen to the word of God. He wants more than the word of God. And so the encouragement in that, friends, is to trust his word. Don't live in constant doubt of God's word. Lean into him and trust him. Gideon needed to trust God. It, it was sinful for him, in fact, to lay out a fleece before God. When God said to him, he said to him earlier, I will be with you and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he needed to learn to trust God's word. And so there's Gideon. God calls to him to get an army together, and then God says, you got too many men, send them home. By the way, no general does this for a battle. They're always wanting more, more men, but God keeps doing this and, and doing this and, and minimizing until there's 300, and they're not the best, they're not the bravest. These are the weak people who don't, don't even bring a weapon to battle. They just stand around the camp with torches and trumpets and at the, the signal they break their lanterns and torches and come ablaze and the Midians turn in on themselves and destroy themselves. And who gets the glory for that victory? God. To God alone be the glory. And that's the whole point. And so Isaiah is making the point here as in the, the day of Midian's defeat so also will be the victory of the Prince of Peace. Jesus, he is our prince, our administrator, our, our ruler for peace of his people. And the Midian 
reference here is to point God's people to the fact that they need a rescuer to come and to rescue them from the war and sin. And it only comes through the prince, through their ruler, Jesus. And friends, you can't have Jesus any other way. He must be your ruler. You can't have him as your savior and rescuer and friend and not have him as your Lord and prince and king. The life that Jesus redeems, he rules. The heart that Jesus cleanses, he commands. There is no deliverance without the dominion of Jesus Christ. So don't be fooled this morning that Jesus can come in and save you and you can just continue to live your life any way you want to. That's a lie. It's not found in the Bible. If you call yourself a Christian, you need to be following Jesus in all of life. And so that means you can't co-opt Jesus into living the way that we want to live. The baby of Bethlehem and the man of Calvary will not allow himself to fall into the background of Christmas emotionalism. He came to rule. He came to be king in our hearts, friends. The government is on his shoulders because he can bear it. He breaks the staff of the oppressor from our shoulders and removes the yoke of burden from us and he takes it. So we need to submit our lives to him, friends. This is what it means to be a Christian. And it's constant. Let's look around and talk to Christians that have been Christians for a long time. This is constant. We're constantly just submitting our life over to him. He has to be our king overall. He has to be our king overall to be our king at all. And God is calling you, friends, this year to quit living as if your life is your own. If you're a Christian, praise the Lord. He owns you. And he's good. He's a good ruler. And he bought you on that cross. He paid you, paid for you, he paid it all. He is prince over all of your life. He's your king. So submit your life to him. Live for him. He's our prince. Second, he brings peace. Jesus is our prince of peace. There, there are a few mistakes to avoid here. Some believe that peace is only the absence of conflict or hostility, and that's true in one sense, but Jesus brings even more something positive. And we have this tendency to read the word peace and think of peacefulness as like sitting at the warmth of a fire, reading a good book. But that's not what Isaiah is trying to communicate with us here at all. No, the peace that Jesus brings is objective and true and real, regardless of how we feel about it. So what does it mean? Well, Ralph Davis, one of my favorite preachers and, and, and commentaries, says this. He's, he means peace in this nasty world, and to bring peace in such a world is no namby-pamby affair. Such peace comes by force. And then Davis goes on to talk about the definition, definition of this by one Jewish man that he gave him of peace, of shalom in Hebrew. And this is what this man said. He said, shalom means we win, you lose. That's what it means. That's a different way to think about peace. Peace, shalom, is a victory word. And you see this, it connects again what happened with the Midianites and Judges, right? In chapter eight, and he said to the men of Penuel, when I come again in peace... I will break down this tower. 
he doesn't mean that he'll destroy it peacefully. It means peace comes when it's destroyed, when he has victory. And through war comes peace. So the point of this entire passage, verses 1 through 7, is that we have been looking at, at this last few weeks is that our Messiah comes for peace, a peace that gives, that comes because he fights for us and because he wins. It's a peace in the wake of victory. That's the, that's the picture here in this passage. In verse 5, for every boot of the trampling war in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. This is the image here, a great battle with a fierce enemy and He's been defeated, utterly destroyed, and the smoke from the battlefield is lifted. And you see the, the evidence of war, the destruction, the remnants of the fighting lying around in, in shoes and garments rolled in blood, and now they're gathered up for fuel to be burned because they have victory. Is he won? When the bad guys lose and the good guys win, Jesus is king. Jesus wins. He has a victory over sin and death. And this is the message of Christmas. It isn't, Christmas isn't meant to bring all the warm fuzzies. It isn't meant to bring about thoughts of sowing and Christmas trees or stockings by the fire. All of those things are fine. But Christmas is about war. The war against our sin and the one who was sent to secure victory over sin and death. The one is Jesus Christ. Jesus brings victory. He brings peace. And when there's a victory, there's finally peace. And if you only imagine Christmas to be the scene of a, of a gentle baby in a manger, and that's all, then you miss the point of Christmas. He is our prince of peace. He came to triumph over sin in the wake of victory in the cross. We now can have real peace. And that peace that he brings is eternal. It's a peace that goes up vertically with God and internally within ourselves and extends horizontally with all people. And we need this peace. And this morning I'm going to lean into something John Piper has said this morning in three ways that this is seen. And I already said this here, but first, the most basic way we need peace is vertically, peace with God. Romans 5.1, it was read earlier, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Justified means that God has declared you to be just in his sight by imputing, by crediting to your account the righteousness of Jesus. And how does he do this? Paul answers it in the verse, by faith alone. Since we've been justified by faith, it's, it's not our works. It's not tradition. It's not baptism. It's not by attending camp when you were a teen. Not by church membership. Not because your parents go to church. Only by faith alone. And when we believe in Jesus Christ as our Savior alone and place him as ruler over our life, we are united to him and his righteousness is credited to us, is given to us. We are justified by faith. And Paul says we have peace with God. All of God's wrath towards our sin is put away. Our rebellion against him is done. God brings us into his family and from here on out, he sees us as he sees his son. He is our father. He is our friend. And we have peace. And this is foundational. This is the first point, vertically. Second, because we have peace with God, we can have it internally, peace with ourselves. 
And this probably has to be one of the greater struggles people have. Just paralyzed with the sense of guilt or anxiety over themselves and what they do or how they think or how they live. And they're constantly worried about the outcome of how they should act. And in it, sometimes it's a self-focused way of living. And sometimes it can be sinful if we're so inwardly focused that we neglect to serve and think of others. Philippians 4, 6 and 7 is one of the most incredible passages in this regard. He says, do not be anxious about anything. See, the opposite of anxiety is peace. He says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. In other words, he's saying, push your anxieties onto God. And then he says, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And the view here is that our minds and hearts are under attack by guilt and confusion and worries and uncertainties. And they're all there to crush our peace. And Paul says that God wants to guard our hearts and minds. And what does he guard them with? His peace. He guards them in a way that goes beyond what human understanding could, can fathom on its own. Don't limit the peace of God by what your understanding can see. We need to pray, friends. When your peace is threatened by anxieties in this world, pause and pray. Do this. Do this at Christmas. Take all of your anxieties to God. Tell him about him. Ask him to help you, to protect you, to guard you, to restore his peace, and he will answer. And the third, when we have peace with God and ourselves, we'll have horizontal peace with others. And this may be hard for many because in this we have the least amount of control at all. Romans 12, 18 says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. For many in this room, you will be together with Christmas, the time with family, and there might be some awkward or even painful relationships. And I recognize that some of you, the pain is real and longstanding. Some of you even don't have any relationship with people who you were closest to for most of your life. It's now out of your control. And Paul's advice is true for you. If it's within your power, live at peace with them. Remind yourself of the gospel, friends. If you're struggling to forgive, remind yourself of God's word. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. We need to continually remind ourselves of this glorious gospel. That in spite of our sins, God has forgiven us in Christ Jesus. Be amazed that you have peace with God. Be amazed that you, a sinner, have peace with God. And let that rule your hearts. Allow that amazement of knowing who you are. Let it seep into your relationships that you struggle to have grace and kindness. Friends, God didn't forgive you because you're perfect or awesome or great. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
keep being more amazed that your wrongs and your sins are forgiven. Be amazed that you have peace with God. You have peace with your soul. Your guilt is taken away and allow that to impact how you minister to others. Do you know that peace today, friends? Do you understand the peace that only Jesus can give? A peace that surpasses all understanding, Paul says. A peace that settles into your heart and navigates you through whatever God providentially brings into your life. Do you know that peace? Jesus is the prince, the king of that peace. And ultimately, that peace is with God. And that's the the basis of all other experiences of peaceful feelings that we have. That's the nature of our king, to give us peace. He's a, a wonderful counselor. He's a mighty God. He's an everlasting father, and he's the prince of peace. That's what he's like. Spurgeon said, you will never know the fullness of Christ until you know the emptiness of everything but Christ. So I would encourage you to empty your trust in other things and place your trust in Christ, and you will have peace. Isaiah ends here, this, just this small section, in verse 7. It says, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. I don't know about you, but I want to write Jesus' name in the next presidential election. I'm ready for him to be ruling on earth. But in John 6, you know, they tried to seize him and force him to be king. But God has his own timetable. He's coming back. And he's going to rule. And he is our mighty God and a wonderful counselor. And in that, it's a perfect blend of power and wisdom. Something that is sorely lacking now. But we need a ruler who is both wise and powerful. A ruler who is powerful and not wise. Well, that's a tyrant. And we see that in our world. A ruler who is wise but has no power, that's a philosopher. It's not a king. We need someone who's both. And that's Jesus. And he is the one whom the government is going to rest on for all of eternity. And his government is increasing. This is a missionary verse, verse 7. Missions verse here. The kingdom is getting bigger and bigger. As the gospel goes forth to the world from every tribe and every language and every nation, the increase happens. This is why I pray each Sunday for other countries around the world. We want to see this happen. For more nations to hear the gospel, to repent and believe in Jesus. It's also why we preach the gospel here from this pulpit every week. And I pray every week for the unbelievers in our midst. And if you're a Christian and you are regular to this church, can I encourage you to pray with me? Even as you sit under the preaching of God's word, pray for those that are seated here amidst us. That they would repent and believe and look to Jesus, turning to him to be saved.
And in this, Christ's kingdom will increase little bit by little bit when another repents and believes in Jesus. And that day, Jesus will return for his church, his bride, and there'll be continued increase to his government. But caused me to pause and think this week, what if the increase isn't just people? But what if the increase is our knowledge and our worship of God? Perhaps it is increasing as we continue to learn more and more and our worship continues to grow of God. Perhaps that's what he means here, that there'll never be an end. The increase continues into heaven. It won't be that we more that are saved, but those that are saved are increased in their knowledge of God. And we increase in our worship of God. I mean, just think with me for a moment. We're in eternity and we're joined with a brother who lived on the other side of the world. And we begin to hear how the gospel flowed through his life as he continued to share and meditate on his truth and share the gospel. And we hear the impact of what he did. That's gonna grow our praise and worship of God. It's gonna increase. It's gonna increase the adoration and praise forever. And on and on it will continue. All the while we will gaze at the throne, worshiping Jesus, focused on him. But until that day comes, we will continue to worship. We will continue to serve God. We will continue to give back to him as he gives us the strength to serve him. And he says here at the end of verse seven, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Spurgeon says, and I'll end with this, our eyes shall see in that day the God that died for us and how, how we will adore him and magnify him. And we will say together the cause for which we struggled, the kingdom for which we fought has come at last. It was a long day and a weary one. And we feared the master would not come some of us fell asleep before his appearing, but we awaken at the knocks at the door. We awaken even with the blessed sleepers, and we come to see the triumph as we once of all old saw the praise. Glory be to God. The victory is secure. The Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray. Jesus, we confess to you that too often we're taking the burden on ourselves that you took on Calvary. All too often, God, we live contented in sin. We try to live our lives apart from you and your word. And we pick and choose parts of the gospel that we want to believe and apply to our lives while trying to still maintain control. We ask that you would convict us, God. What rebels we have been. Move us to repent and submit all of our lives to you. And we ask that you, Lord Jesus, come and rule in our hearts to take your place as King of kings and Lord of lords. We surrender all of our lives to you. We know our shoulders are not nearly big enough, but yours are. Help us to release the pain and worry that fills our hearts and our minds and help us to find our peace in Jesus, 
our prince. Help us to honor you in all we do as Christians this Christmas. It's for your honor and glory we pray. Amen.